This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Bogner, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. My ho- uh, guest on the podcast today is Chad Jacobson, owner and brewmaster of Crooked Stave Artisan Beer Project in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thank you very much for having me. Um, many of you may know Chad from his uh, uh, from early days in experimenting with Britannomyces. His master thesis, the Britannomyces Project, is uh, one, of, one of the more influential works in the world of brewing today among those that love sour and wild beer. Uh, some of the research that he did has been pretty fundamental uh, in some of his isolating of, of you know, breath strains is something that has impacted uh, hundreds or maybe even a thousand brewers around the country or around the world at this point. Um, you know, it's hard to find, you know, folks in the world of brewing that have, have you know, nexus like that with you know so many strands of influence that stretch out but the work you know that you did in identifying Britannomyces strains and expanding our knowledge of the world of Britannomyces was pretty fundamental um tell me a little bit chat about how you got interested in Britannomyces as a subject um you know because there aren't a lot of uh you know master's students out there in the world that just say hey i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into this like weird corner of the brewing world that uh is not a commercially viable thing at at the point when you were doing it in the you know the 2000s um i mean that that seems like a a strange thing to jump off into and uh, so tell me a little bit how that happened yeah absolutely and and even uh in in doing it and in preparing really I told, so I was studying at uh, Harriet Watt in Edinburgh, Scotland, and doing my master's on brewing and distilling. And I was focusing much more on brewing, even though we still do all the distilling work. And in telling my professors, yeah, I'm going to study Britannomyces, they really all looked at me like, who is this idiot American? Uh, <laughs> you want to study this thing that is actually ruining yeah, yeah. these other products? Like, that no, we, we've make. worked so hard to get rid of this. Yeah, like, yeah. Why, why would you study that? That has no like no intent no use in brewing at all uh and and in the end it it's really become something uh, you know otherworldly compared to to where it was so yeah it really focused from my early days in wine so before doing brewing and distilling and becoming a brewer i was really interested in wine and wine making and that was the first time that i'd ever heard of brett Turns out I'd been drinking Britannomyces beers actually for years. We were really blessed to be here in Colorado and to have New Belgium Brewing Company who had La Folie and had Beer de Mars. And it was a really you know, interesting night even when you know, we had discovered Beer de Mars. Other friends had been on the tour and it had this beer and they knew about some of the different ingredients in it, but we really didn't know what Wild East was at the time. And we drank so much Beer de Mars. And turns out there I was, you know, this must have been 2000, 2004, 2005, drinking these Britannomyces beers as a young college student and loving them. And then La Folie. And La Folie was an experience because this is a you know, full-on... You had great taste for a college student. Uh, I imagine you were not uh, one of many uh, you know, in that uh, early college time that was you know, drinking there bread was, beers. There's a few of us, okay. a few of us, okay. funny okay. enough. Uh, but no, and, and we didn't realize that. You know, we were... I, I love to say still to this day, like, it's just beer. And we yeah. really considered it beer and we're drinking it. Uh, Lawfully was definitely a different beast. And that was beautiful to try. But I didn't know anything about its production, how it's made. 
yet there I was studying winemaking, viticulture, and enology, and learning about different indigenous fermentations. I was less on the micro microbiology side at that time and more on the viticulture, so growing grapes for making right. wine. And then in studying in New Zealand, I remember hearing about it in class, and it was just always referred to as Brett. And it was like, does this have Brett in it? And it still goes back to kind of the stereotypical times of now, like, who is Brett and why is he in my beer? And at that point, it was, you know, who is Brett and why is he in my wine? And so we would talk about it. And it actually took me about a year or so to put the correlation together. And it was with Orval. So drinking a bottle of Orval. And at that point, knowing, like, this is this, you know, infamous Trappist beer that has Britannomyces. It's really... Orval is like an old world saison. It's really what it is from its initial foundings and kind of just always staying the way beer was. And now it's very technology advanced, very modern, very driven by what they do. And that was like, oh, like Brett from wine, Brett from beer, and everything just kind of unraveled from that point. Thinking about the wild and sour beers at, at New Belgium La Folie and then Beer to Mars and the fact that you know, outside of that brewery, I'd never heard of any other brewery using this. And so I started looking at it, researching it, trying to find out as much information. And at that point, I uh, had been accepted to go and do my master's at Harriet Watt. I decided I wasn't going to continue with wine, but instead I really wanted to be a brewer. I loved the, the creativity, the passion, um, you know, where the industry was back then, 2006, 2007, yeah. and that ability. So I knew I wanted to go and do that. And I realized there was no information on Britannomyces. So in many ways, the initial foundings for wanting to do the research was out of selfishness myself. I wanted to learn as much about this yeast. And I mean, outside of a couple of papers from the 70s and, and mid 80s, there was nothing on Britannomyces at all. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that actually a lot of the information was misinformation. So it wasn't true. There's all this stuff about how Britannomyces can't ferment beer and how when it does ferment, it ferments using the Crabtree effect and it needs oxygen and then only makes acetic acid and you can never have a complete fermentation. And right about that time, you had breweries like Russian River and Lost Abbey popping up and they made some 100% Britannomyces beers. So we knew this was possible, but yet all scientific literature, the scientific brewing industry thought completely otherwise. And so it it basically became my goal to rewrite the history of Britannomyces and, and show like this, this, this yeast has a place in brewing and we can use this. And it's not this scary yeast the way winemakers make it out to be. So how did you go about that? You know, um, how did you go about finding new sources of Britannomyces, finding Britannomyces in, in places that might have been under our noses that we didn't realize? Um, and how did you go about, you know, kind of building this broader knowledge a, a base for Britannomyces? Yeah, so one of the things I did quickly realize was that the couple of strains available, all of a sudden, uh, there was like three. And you start reading, and you start learning about the genome and, and the genetics of Britannomyces and start playing around with the lab and realizing that there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of possibility of variants and different types of Britannomyces in and of itself. Easiest way to explain that is similar to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, every single ale yeast, if you will, that we use is genetically Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Yet, you know, we've got London and Scottish and Belgian too, and, and all these different types of Saccharomyces cerevisiae strains that ferment very differently. In Britannomyces, we don't just have Britannomyces bruxellensis. We've got bruxellensis, animalis, clausinii, nardensis, nanus, and within each one of those, 
there can be hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of different strains. And so when there was three available in the sort of brewing industry, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so I sought out to, you know, certainly looking at the spontaneous beers. One thing we knew is that spontaneous beers from, from, you know, around Brussels were said to have 200 plus organisms in them. Many of them going to be Britannomyces and then wine. Wine was another big one. At one point, everyone thought that, so Britannomyces itself, the name means British fungus. Yeah. So, and it was first, first discovered from a scientific aspect in these British stock ales. And they were really looking for, the quote is, the, the character that created the finest stock ales. This was a highly sought after character. And that's why when they were able to culture this and, and really get it to one single organism, it had come from these British stock ales, so it was called Britannomyces Latin for British fungus. And so neat to see that, and then see in papers where they thought it was only in England and Belgium because of these Belgian beers. And that really continued. Most people, you know, five years ago were still calling Britannomyces a, a Belgian yeast. There's nothing Belgian about Britannomyces. It's found in every winemaking region around the world, every fruit region, everywhere that you have fruit or anything like that, you're going to find Britannomyces. It's indigenous to the world. And that, that really spreading that idea that there are so many types of Britannomyces. And so trying to collect them from wines. So I would, there was a wine that I found and I was like, there's some Brett in this. The one thing I knew is that Brett was a survivor. And especially if you weren't, weren't chilling it, weren't really leaving it cold for a long time, it liked to live. So looking for any beer sources, old beer sources, there's like the old Courage Brewery and different ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fun to culture from Orval. It's, it's fun to culture from especially the Lambic breweries, but wine as well. And looking for Britannomyces in really any place that, that I could to find new strains and to see how they compared to the commercially available strains basically became the idea of the dissertation as well as trying to see, you know, could this be done in four weeks? You know, a, a fair amount of commercial lagers are still brewed that take up to 28 days, some longer, 35 days. And so I, I saw that as an acceptable period of time for trying to primary ferment with Britannomyces. And from there, it just kept unraveling more questions, more things to look at, more things to find out. And and I loved it because, So what know, is myself, this process? I mean, you're now you're looking at a funnel. You've got you know, potentially thousands and thousands of different Britannomyces, but, you know, you're also looking to find an application for these in yeah. brewing beer. And so that is a, you know, definitely a more specialized approach. They have to be alcohol tolerant. They have to be able to ferment. Yeah. How do you go from, from the top of this gigantic funnel into identifying, uh, you know, more of these varieties that can actually ferment beer and, and then when they ferment also produce you know, flavors that human beings are going to find palatable and enjoyable because um, there's another challenge to that. Absolutely. So that was getting the ones that I had into single strains and also accepting the fact that I could not look at every single Britannomyces yeah. strain ever. So I really had to pare it down to a few and say, Hey, here was the direction I was going back then for me. It's same as it is now. It was always about Roman flavor. So after a couple of ferments with some of the ones looking at some of their results, smelling them, it was kind of like choosing some of your favorites. And you're just, you know, pushing a lot of wort out there and a lot of very small half gallon, one gallon fermentations. Just yeah, sometimes one liter, one liter yeah. even smaller. Yeah, just trying to look at little stuff. Um, different uh, graduated cylinders as mm. well that work as like fermentation tubes. And so taking that and going from, you know, over 300 different fermentations 
and boiling it down to then like six strains I wanted to work with and then redividing those six strains up. It was another 300 plus fermentations that I did with then all of those strains for the research. Hmm. And so it's kind of one of those things I, I compare it to when you're traveling. I'm the traveler who wants to spend month, three months in one single country and visit every city and go around and see the culture and see everything. But ultimately it comes down to how much time do you have? How much money do you have? And how are you feasibly going to be able to do this? And so you just have to accept that there's some things you're not going to see and be able to do. I had to accept that, you know, there's going to be more strains out there and we have the rest of our life to continue looking at those. But at this point, we need to do this research and learn as much about these as we can now. Sure, sure. And maybe you inspire someone else to pick up uh, and take, take some other chunk of that away. Um, tell me a little bit about what you found, you know, through that process of winnowing this down to a, this smaller number of uh, varieties and, uh, you know, some of the, the different characters and how those those Brett varieties uh, differ from each other. It was definitely a learning process. And, and then how they also differ from some of the more, you know, standard commercially yeah. available no, ab- strains. Absolutely. So it was an interesting process that's definitely, you know, set me kind of on the path to, to where we are now. It led to the creation of Crooked Stave and what it, what it was then, what it meant, and what it's become. And many of the practices and processes we used. So some of the strains, when I received them, were not pure cultures, uh, even from commercial yeast companies. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Now we know a lot more about this <laughs> over the coming years. Sure, sure. Uh, But I would like to say I reported that back in 2008. Just saying. <laughs> uh, that's always a good one. Uh, but I'm sure yeah. they love you for that. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's all good. Yeah. We, we learn a lot from it. Sure. So I spent time even culturing those strains that were commercially available, single strains that weren't single strains, back down into one strain. But I also left them as the mixed cultures that they were. Especially then, you were not hearing about mixed culture fermentations. It was about primary, secondary, tertiary, as you added them in these stages and and doing these really staged fermentations for making wild and sour beer. And what was amazing was the difference. And that process that you're describing is one that was driven by folks like Rodenbach in the New Belgium, where they'd fully ferment out, and then they'd add add bugs to fully fermented beer. Yep, and then these stages, in comparison to... Really, a mixed culture fermentation is more similar to a spontaneous one. Yeah. Even though you still have the stages, everything was inoculated at one time. And then when it, when it decides to kind of rear its head in that development and go through, and whether that's from oak or where it is, that's kind of the way those go. And so with this, with these mixed, mixed culture fermentations, as it was, compared to the primary fermentations, I definitely saw some differences. Hmm. And some of the strains that were especially reported at that time to be these great primary fermenters when I when I pulled them and cultured them out on their own and just fermented singly with that single organism, they actually weren't very good fermenters. Uh, I have some some of the like less impressive results, I guess you would say, from mm. those. But as mixed cultures, they were phenomenal, and so that was a neat thing to see. And that took years to influence me more on. What do you think? You know, is the root of that kind of like symbiotic uh, uh, action of these mixed cultures? I, I think it's about the symbiotic action. A lot of a lot of also my background and, and interest comes from right from that back when it was about growing grapes and just horticulture science in general. And to me, everything in the plant is all what's down in the soil. So all those organisms, all the mycorrhiza, all the fungi, everything, these symbiotic relationships, the way nutrients are being made available to plants that they're taking up and all the micronutrients they need. It's a very similar sort of thought when you think of it with beer and how we ferment. So 
beer, the, the industrialization really of beer, if you look at it that way, this creating one single organism and fer- fermenting with it is really foreign to brewing actually in the history of brewing. And it's really a modern thing that's happened over like the last 100, 150 years. And there's still breweries that have never modernized. You know, there's air quotes you can't see there. <laughs> in the sense of using just these single organisms. So right. trying to apply that to Britannomyces, a yeast which was never used on its own, was a neat concept. That's where it was a really novel kind of idea. And But besides just being novelty, as Warner said, Brett, it also gave insight into the what Britannomyces could do. If it can do this on its own, then we can apply some of that idea to what it can do as co-ferments. I was always about making sour beer one of the biggest pedestals I get on is the fact that Britannomyces does not equal sour. Britannomyces is this wild yeast. It produces these aromas and flavors that you associate with it, but you must have the bacteria uh, or genes from bacteria to create the acidity. And so I really wanted to see what Britannomyces could do on its own. And so while some of them were poor primary fermenters, they still produce great aromatics. Uh, and so that was, that was a neat insight. My research continued to look just at them as pure culture. So you know, I, I look at brewing from this quality aspect. So, okay, how do we work with this in the lab? It's so important to know how you culture Saccharomyces, what your strain of Saccharomyces looks like, and then to know if you have anything else, because you could know if you had an, an infection. And so it's important to know what Britannomyces and what these Britannomyces yeasts look like. So a lot of time culturing them, learning what media they like to grow on, mm-hmm. they're different. I mean, it's no different than, you know, your pet or anything that you're used to where, you know, you know what time it likes to go to sleep or what food it likes to eat or when it wants to go for a walk, all these things. Yeast are very much like that. So these were like my babies that I collected and, and learned about. I knew what each one looked like. I could tell if they were all on a single plate all together. I could name each one and which one it was just because you get used to what it looks like. And that's really important in the lab setting as well as learning how it grows. That was completely different. It was different than anything in any brewing literature. There were these dye and trioxic curves. So basically... Saccharomyces has a really beautiful bell curve sort of look to its growth. Mm-hmm. Saccharomyces was like if you stacked multiple of those curves on top of each other. So you'd have this period of growth and then a lag phase and then another period of growth and then a lag phase. And that probably has a lot to do with why Britannomyces was so misunderstood in the beginning and why people thought it couldn't ferment is because we think and we look at yeast over a period of 24 to 48 hours when we're looking into a lab well, Britannomyces, 24 to 48 hours is often its needed lag phase before it starts to ferment. So we started to learn more about internally how Britannomyces worked. And that's what was able to push which strains maybe had certain genes that were turned on that could be used for primary fermentation and which one were better for secondary. And so I really started categorizing how I thought these Britannomyces best worked and what periods. Some are beautiful in the first one to three months. Some give you their character after six months and summer 18 months. And so I started seeing like, if you stacked these different Britannomyces strains on top of each other, even if you add them at once, you could get this really long, nice, beautiful flavor profile and this evolution of the beers. So those are the things I started to see sort of behind the scenes while I was doing these fermentations and continuing to play around with the, the research and the results that I got. That's interesting. What are, what are you know, from a sensory perspective, um, you know, w- what would you get out of some of these different, uh, you know, Britannomyces strains uh, that you find so beautiful? Yeah. So I've, I've always, maybe I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Britannomyces, you know, and it's like a kid and you, you, you protect it and you stick up for it. And so I've always kind of, it's, I guess you could say it's ruffled my feathers when 
people use words like barnyard and and all these different sort of uh, aggressive characteristics. Yes, I have horse smelt blanket. Those. Yeah. yeah, right. Uh, I, I have a shirt that's got a horse with a with a blanket on. It, it says horse blanket on it. Uh, so it's it's good. It's still funny. But those characteristics, I don't know why anybody wants that in their beer. You know, funky. I stay away from that word because I think it's too general. Uh, so yeah, they're they're wild characteristics, if you will, in those types of beers. But I always wanted to accentuate, and I always liked more of the citrus, the tropical fruit, the floral type characteristics that you got. Yeah, you'll also get maybe sort of leather, earthy, sometimes tobacco notes, herbaceous, uh, some spices, some different notes like that. We really started to look at, you know, I, I looked at that just from a brewer. That, that's got a lot to do with how you brew and how you make your wort. But so in looking at these strains and concentrating and, and thinking about them, you know, and, and describing them as well, I was looking for where we saw positive characteristics and where we saw less positive characteristics. So it definitely has some strains, and more of them are the ones actually that come from different spontaneous beers from Brussels that, you know, from one to six months is funky. Uh, it's a little bit out there. It's a little bit more than I want, but it starts to develop these nicer sort of cherry notes, more uh, fruit forward, uh, light like floral notes after six months. So I consider it sort of like a, a cleaning up period almost for these yeasts. So that's one where, okay, I like this yeast for the long run because I know it does really well creating nice complex flavors six months later down the line. So unless this beer, and six months isn't that long when you're thinking about barrel aging and stuff like that. So you're like, okay, yeah. let it clean up in the barrel and let it do its thing. But if you're doing 100% Britannomyces primary fermentation and looking to have that ready in a four-week, six-week period, I'm going to stay away from that yeast strain. Right, right. And so a lot of the, the blends, I like to use more than one Britannomyces strain. Yeah. Uh, it, it adds to complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of the saying, two heads are better than one. I, I believe two Britannomyces strains are better than one. Um, so while I have my singular favorites for different things, they each kind of have their place. And that was a big thing that I learned, I think, a little bit more after the research and more as we got going with, with Crooked Stave and, and being able to play around five strains, two strains, three strains, and seeing what each one did and when. You know, we also know from some of the research that's been done on spontaneous beer and lambic that, uh, you know, often the, the off flavors that are produced by the very initial, uh, you know, bacterial, um, uh, you know, processes end up being metabolized by Britannomyces. And so, um, you know, they can take some of those harsher flavors over that long run and turn them into, you know, more pleasant flavors if... You know, if you have some idea of how that kind of thing happens, absolutely, it has to be a pretty big learning curve for you to figure out what it takes to actually do that and, and how those uh, each impact each other. It is, and it takes a lot of time too. Where, you know, we we like to talk about a crooked stave for for a standard brewery. You know, basically, brew day to package is somewhere in the neighborhood of three weeks, and we really say our process starts where other breweries are packaging their beer. Yeah, we're just yeah. getting started with our beer and it takes t so long to get these results and to see it it's part of what has taken us definitely you know eight years to get to where we are now and every year year over year things only get better we have a better understanding of it and research and so it it is quite a learning curve and you also have to put some eggs in in one basket essentially we have we have strains that we like and we continue to work with those we have not really gone outside of that as other people you know use use yeast or from beers we use or do things like that or culture it 
I taste similar flavors that pop up in other people's beers, but there certainly could be ways to get those same characteristics from other Brett strains. So we've kind of just said, hey, we're going to hedge our bets in these ones. They're what I like the most. They're from the research. We found them. Like These are so interesting. They have the characteristics that have made Crooked Stave what it is and, and the flavors of our beers, and we're going to stick with these and learn as much about them as we can. And you know, it comes from that research background, definitely not changing too many variables. You got to know your variables and you yeah. got to know the variable that you changed. I like to talk about brewing process and quality as this triangle and, you know, a, a brewmaster, a figurehead, really, you can't have one of those if you don't have, to me, a, a really in-depth quality lab. You've got to have a quality lab. You've got to understand your processes very, very well. When you understand all your processes and where those processes relate to sensory, you can then build a really sophisticated sensory program. And from that sensory program, you can be able to say, okay, this, this attribute here, we're finding to be too much or too little. You go back and there's a measurement you can do, you know, let's, let's say if it's, you know, diacetyl and it's related to, you know, how long you're fermenting, right? Well, you start to look at when did you crash the tank or different things like this. Uh, for us, we take VDK reading. So we're using a spectrophotometer. We're looking at it, watching that curve. We know when we crash where it's going to get to and all of that. So if, diacetyl's example popped up you would say oh well you know let's go back and look at the the analytics from all the quality measures that we took on this beer and you can dial from those numbers back to the process which would be you know when you crashed or the yeast health there's so many things that you can look at and you can understand about the beers and so having that really really in-depth understanding and being able to look at it only then can you make a decision which is ultimately what a, a brewmaster a figurehead if you will can be able to say, okay, let's change this process so that we can positively influence this beer in in a sensory aspect. Because you know, at the it's end a of the day, it's a very data driven process. We, we drink for, the beer, uh, yeah, and especially when you know crooked stave. Ultimately, what ends up in the bottle, whether it's Pilsner and IPA we're making, is art. We really look at it as art. It's our canvas for how we make the beers. So we use that that science and all of that background, which started with the Britannomyces process, to only change certain variables. So that in the end, this art, these beers that we blend together and make, we can make them in the way that, that we believe, you know, we love. And along the way, there's a lot of luck involved, right? There's something sure, you see, sure. but we go back and figure out what it was so that that doesn't become luck. That becomes a given process. And that's essentially what you're doing with these Britannomyces strains from a research standpoint all right. the way to a practical application to be able to apply them in your brewery. So I, I think, you know, if there's like a piece of advice I can give. It's don't change too much stuff and and know what it is you're doing so that when you do change a certain variable you can see the the positive influence that it has on your product and you can make that reproducible and repeatable yeah um so you have these strains of Britannomyces that do interesting things um there's a another process that then you, you have to go through to actually create beers for consumers based on those. And so now you form, you have to formulate, you know, water profile, malt profiles. Um, tell me a little bit about that process of figuring out how you're going to take, you know, the, these, you know, Britannomyces strains and make interesting beers from them that uh, also express, you know, those other beer characters such as, you know, again, malt hops, uh, and uh, you know a certain mouthfeel that can be gained from you know water profiles and whatnot. Absolutely, and every one of those has a really really important aspect to it. So there's understanding the yeast, understanding the Britannomyces, being able to do that, and other aspects start with you know 
uh, what what many breweries will refer to as just good brewing and good brewing techniques. So a big thing to me is recipes. You know, it starts there, and the recipe is more than just the malt and the hops and the yeast. I mean, it's got everything to do with how you're brewing on brew day, why you're doing the different processes that you're doing on brew day into fermentation. And that's huge. You know, I think that it's probably one of the reasons why we love brewing a Pilsner because it really shows the dedication to recipe process and everything all the way through. You can't make a world-class Pilsner and an exceptional Pilsner if every process is not dialed in. It's just this beautiful naked beer. And so being able to showcase that is, is so important to me and being able to showcase that when it, showcase that within the processes. So good, good recipe development, not making things too complicated. I think if you were to look at every recipe at Crooked Stave, you could see this underlying base factor that every single one really is, is born from the same place. If we want to get a little bit more color, you know, we understand which malts. If there's flavors we're looking for, you know, you can do that by reading about your malts, tasting your malts, taste everything. We're making a, a product where sensory is the ultimate for it. You should taste everything that ever goes into that beer. And so from these base recipes and then a good understanding of the brew house. So I've always kind of had the dogma and the mantra that you can really take care of anything in the brew house. And you really can, depending on the beer you're looking to brew, you know, mashing schedule, whether you're on a single infusion brew house or you have a mash mixer and you can do multiple steps, you really still have this freedom to create the beer that you want to. If you want to be able to release different phenolics, the peak the ferulic acids into the beer, you know, we know that doing a rest at 110 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, sorry, I have to go back and forth between Fahrenheit and Celsius and, and think about it, you know, and like in the 45, 50 degrees Celsius range, we know we're going to bring some of those out, right? So yeah. those can influence your heavy bisons, but that can also influence your Botanomyces beers that have these uh, POF positive genes as well and can produce these different phenolics. Some people like to accentuate them and some people don't. For us, we don't. So we're really big at mashing in right at kind of that nice alpha beta amylase conversion mm-hmm. uh, conversion rest point. I've always been taught, you know, three to one ratio and that's that's liters to kilograms of malt. So this, a lot of this is going to be in metric. So pull your calculators out. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that creates this really, really nice space for the beer. And then depending on where we want to go, we can go a little bit more dry. And in, in the IPAs, we go a little bit closer to 2.6 uh, liters per, per kilo. In the big imperial stouts, well, some of that's just out of necessity. We're closer to 2.5, sometimes 2.7. Really depends on you know, how dry we want to get the beer, where we want the fermentation to go. So color, you know, everything from that runoff, the malt, and one thing that's really crucial to color that people don't realize as well is water profile. So we send our water off every single month and during what we call runoff months, so spring in Colorado, we're sending it off at least once, sometimes once every other week, once mm. a week, looking to see how our water's changed. And so we get all of our salt ions that are in our water. In Colorado, it's really, really soft water. Uh, most everything is in the single digits. And so then we need to build in, you know, using gypsum and Epsom salt, you know, so magnesium sulfate, calcium sulfate, NaCl, and we build that perfect water profile for the color. So the residual alkalinity, alkalinity that you have, you bring in, is going to influence the pH. You have to have this buffering capability. And so we're really intense in the brew house 
the brewer from basically mash in to kettle full will take eight different readings of pH and gravity. It's really, really crucial what that gravity is and where we're at. You know, we're able to tell how we're sparging, how our bed is, how even it is, where our runoff's going, and we're able to tell that pH. Once you start to, your pH gets too high, you start to bring too many compounds out from that malt, and vice versa, if you get too low, you start to decrease your efficiencies and your enzymes, and all of that relates to the flavor of the beer. You taste beers, and sometimes you taste them, and you're like, this is a little husky, or it starts oxidizing. You know, I, I taste it all the time in beers, and instantly I'm like, they sparge too hot. I can tell when the temperature gets too high, and you start to extract the anthocyanins, the different plant materials out of the husk. pH can do the same thing. If you don't keep your pH in range, you'll start to extract these characteristics. Those oxidize so quickly compared mm. to when you don't have any of them. Uh, I think it's kind of funny in our industry. Here's another one, a little one. People are so big on, on fresh beer and it being under 90 days. Well-made beer, there's no reason for that at all. We have some of our beers that, I mean, I have them in my fridge at home that are 120 days, and I'm drinking them, and they're delicious. They're amazing. I have no reason to drink 120-day-old beer. I can drink three-day-old beer every single day here because of how much we're packaging and what we have, but I have no problem drinking 120-day-old beer because it still is retaining those characteristics and tasting great. That's all about that process, laying that out all the way through. Taking those measurements, looking at your dissolved oxygen and, and TPO in the can is by far the hugest and sure making cuts and saying we're going to stop if we get this higher where we get there relating that back to the brew house this ph those gravities and so it's important to send that important to send that stuff off and to be able to look at it so whether you're brewing a sour beer a beer meant to be sour right eventually or an imperial stout or a pilsner you know you've you've dialed that in and so there's right. so much that you really take care of in the brew house so i look at that brew house day as being so crucial we're not even as brewers we make wort but it's very important, the food that we have for the yeast and that beer. And probably we have such an intense look at it in that sense because we are used to a beer that we're going to put into barrels and we're not going to see it for 12 months, 18 months. Um, actually, we have Imperial Stouts in the back that it's been 29 months. Ooh. And we're tasting those and it's amazing, absolutely amazing. But if we didn't have everything so perfect on the brew day, we wouldn't have what we call that beer matrix for the life of that beer to be able to last so long and to be able to live up to what we want it to be. You put that emphasis into your IPAs, your Pilsners, or even our Botanomyces beers, like St. Brett or coffee, uh, Colorado Wild Sage, and you're going to get that, that same outcome. And that's, that's important then for that yeast, right? I, I love the saying, brewers make wort, yeast makes beer. That's your, that's your best friend is yeast. And I, I think it's often overlooked, the yeast health, the viability, the vitality, how you're pitching, the repeatability of doing that, what that pH, that starting pH is uh, going into that fermentation and why that is so crucial. The yeast is going to give you everything that you need. It's the one thing you almost, you take care of your yeast and they'll take care of you. Mm -hmm. We did all this stuff on brew day, all these things we justified, we tweaked, we fixed, we got in, you know, we were able to get our salt ions just right, the pH, the gravities, all of that to make this beer that's going to last so long. And then it's all up to the yeast. And so same thing, like healthy yeast and all that. And, you know, happy yeast, happy beer. So what does happy yeast look like when you, uh, when you pitch that yeast? You know, what do you do to, uh, to keep that culture healthy, viable, and to, to give it, you know, the right start 
uh, on a new beer. Absolutely. And I think that one, and, and mind you, uh, another one of my favorite things is that there's a lot of dogma in brewing. And, and so what we're getting today is really like the crooked stave dogma of brewing. Uh, I love it because we've, we've tried to bring dogma from all over the world. Uh, professors who would talk about it in the UK, they think uh, purging with CO2 through all your lines, oh, there's no reason to do that. Such a joke. The Germans do that. And then you see the Germans who do it. But then you taste German beer and you taste English ale and you're like, yeah, I think this English ale has a little bit more oxygen influence in it. And wow, this German beer is really crisp and clean, right? So how do you bring all those attributes together and stuff? And, and how does that relate to the yeast and where it is? There's tons of books, tons of information on yeast. And again, it all becomes your process and what you're able to do. Honestly, there's no perfect process with yeast. That's one of the very interesting things. What yeast does ultimately kills it, right? You put it into this nutrient-rich, high-sugar concoction, wort that you've made, and the minute yeast starts producing alcohol, right, alcohol is toxic to yeast and CO2, and so you're putting it in this environment that you want to make it as friendly as possible, and then you also want to get it out as possible. And so a lot of process in brewing is fermentation, that fermentation, you know, could last anywhere from, we, we especially talk about the ester formation, 24 to 72 hours. There's different processes there by increasing the CO2 in the tank, basically leaving head pressure on it, spooning or bunging, and that can decrease esters, you know, warmer fermentations, lower fermentations, and it's all really about that yeast. We use a yeast that is, uh, it, it's an English ale yeast, and it's really fickle. So you start getting higher higher work gravities and it will spit out a ton of higher alcohols so we work to uh, create an environment where we're going to get you know lower lower less higher alcohols so that the beer is never boozy or fiery we would never want that for instance like in the double ipas at the same time we we like semesters so we like we're, we're really going for especially like in ipas uh, and even in the saisons as well that we brew a tropical citrus type characteristic so we say when we get this like apricot, uh, mandarin type characteristic from our yeast. About four to six days in, like we know we've got really, really happy yeast. And so, you know, we're going essentially, you know, we're always looking at pitching rates, we're always pulling out, we're taking viabilities every single day. And we really see that our yeast from day seven to day nine, I mean, sometimes could lose up to 50% of its viability. And we're usually able to correlate that back to how old that pitch is. So we've decided for these yeast strains, we only go 10 pitches before we go back and start a brand new generation, you know, all yeah. over again with it. And so those flavors, those higher alcohols, it's kind of how we're judging it. But then, you know, you want to crash yeast out. So one of the biggest things is to start to cool it. Well, yeast, as much as it doesn't like alcohol and it doesn't like CO2, it really doesn't like cold temps either. You know, that's like trying to wake a bear up probably from hibernation and be like, okay, go. Okay, and do this 365 right. days a year. I don't think the bear's going to be very happy. So we look at different levels. So for the English ale yeast, while we might not get as thick of a yeast crop or as much as we would like, uh, we only drop it about 2 degrees Celsius, give it about 24 hours, take our yeast crop, and it is that day into the next batch of beer. So we really try to go the shortest amount of time we can between... When the beer is finished, diacetyl rest, that's a huge, huge marker for us in most breweries, is 
Um, and we don't really look at his diacetyl rest, but once we're running VDKs on spectrophotometer and we see diacetyl getting down to a level where we know it's gonna be below threshold, we'll drop that tank about two degrees. That's usually on day five to seven, so six on average. Drop it about two degrees Celsius. Crop the yeast off. The rest of the yeast is dumped to the drain. We like to get the yeast out of the beer before dry hopping, before hmm. you know even more crashing mm -hmm. and such. And then that yeast is cropped and used that day. So it's really crucial, the turnover of tanks and being able to get the next same beer in to it, not having dry hops in the yeast or anything else in the yeast, yeah. and then going back into that fermentation. And so that's how, I, how we try to mitigate the amount of time it spends on alcohol, the amount of time it spends on CO2, and the amount of time it spends cold and then reusing it. And that's because we have a finicky yeast. We had you know other Saison strains we used to use, and they would stay in the beer for three weeks until we would crop them and use them again. They loved it. They never had any problem. So knowing your yeast, knowing your pets, right? Sure, and being able sure. to do it. But looking at the literature and the dogma behind it is what makes you happy at the end of the day, what seems to really be working, what's, what's being reproducible. And you'll basically say, this is the best way for our yeast. And, and you have your own dogma. For sure. So in, in a broader sense, you know, one of the things that uh, we're tasting a lot these days, especially in wild and sour beer, is a gradual reduction in acidity that, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at the way that, um, you know, beer nerds in America in particular uh, relate to things, when we got into craft beer in the 2000s, it was all about how many hops we could you know, possibly bear to drink. And so you had the most brutal, intense, over-the-top, bitter beers, you know, that you could, you know, and, and then you also had big, high alcohol beers, you know, because, you know, we had to prove to ourselves that we're Hell craft yeah. beer drinkers, you know, we, we can, can drink stronger it. beers than everyone else. And so, you know, for a lot of, you know, that history of craft beer, you know, this idea of bigger, bolder, you know, stronger, you know, has, has kind of driven that mindset and mentality and to some degree as american made sour beer started you know cranking up in the late 2000s and early 20 teens that acidity you know became the thing and this intense bracing acidity you know became a thing that started to define american sour beer um over the last couple of years you know you and other sour beer brewers have started to you know massage and uh, uh, bring that down into a more gentle and drinkable place um, to make these beers you know just you know less appealing to the that you know you know guy that's got to drink the hardest thing but more drinkable on a daily basis um, something that you know you would probably uh, also agree that you know Belgian you know brewers and lambic brewers have been focused on for a very long time how do we make these acidic beers also drinkable on a on a more regular basis um, how has that arc looked for you all because you all made some pretty acidic beers back in the day absolutely and you're making uh, you know uh, according to our blind review panel who uh, had some of your latest batch of persica last week um, a whole different place of acidity now in terms of you know balance with uh, you know with malt and fruit and uh, um, soft and gentle and still present but uh, you know not overbearing in a way that that uh, some uh, may have assumed it might have been. Yes, yeah. Uh, tell me about how you have you know, pushed that arc to where it is now and how you are uh, in some ways controlling your sour culture in order to you know, produce these uh, uh, more subtle expressions Absolutely. of acidity. Absolutely. And I think I would start this by saying I think this is one of the biggest successes that I have seen um, maybe ever really 
from our standpoint in craft brewing, there was the, the IBU arms race, you know, as we like to call it. And one of the most difficult things about judging every year I judge at the Great American Beer Fest is that it is a muscle flexing contest. And craft beer for so long has been a muscle flexing contest. And I mean, when you're sitting on a panel about to judge 14 beers and you've got to push three on to the next round because there's 540 beers or something, you know, entered in this one category. Sometimes it's only like 45, but still. Uh, yeah, you tend to push on what stuck out for you, right? And that's that that arms race, that muscle flexing contest. For something, you guys, it's, it's almost like judges at GABF are sitting at their average bottle share where the, the beers that the guys tend to rate the highest are the ones that can jump out yeah. above the crowd, right? Yeah, it's for the same reason. Like, we won't send a Britannomyces beer to a sour beer festival because this this delicate, complex, beautiful little beer just gets thrashed yeah. because it's not you know sour and fruit and all these other things. So one of the things that I love is that you know th- my mentors and those who came before me that I have so much respect for really pounded this into me and I think started pounding it in the early days. We always talked about sour beer is not meant to be aggressive. So you go back to Vinny, Tommy, you know, Scott, uh, Captain Lawrence, these different people, uh, Peter Bukar, and it was always sour beer. This is not the sour arms race. Nobody wants the most aggressive sour beer. That is gross. We want to make the most complex beer. And that resonated with me maybe more than anything because I was coming from the wine industry where in the wine world, I mean, apparently we have, you know, Zinfandel in the United States and I guess it's big and all this stuff, but the rest of the world and even what the United States has has become and what it's done is balance. So we look at making wine with this sort of this X and Y axis and, and it's really a cross. And so you have these four quadrants and you're looking at, you know, what does alcohol mean? What does tannins mean? What does fermentation-derived characteristics, and how do each one of these balance each other? For so long, you know, even the best craft beers that stand out, right, the Extreme Beer Fest and all these things of these beers that got created, they are the exact opposite of uh, being balanced. They have one or a couple of attributes that stand out just too much. And, you know, we like to say it's, it's the best you know, two ounces that you'll ever drink. Um, but we're not really in the business of selling two ounces of beer. We like selling cork and cage 750 mil bottles, right? That's, that's beautiful for champagne. It's beautiful for, for wine. It's, you know, great for celebration. And so that making beer the most complex sours, not the most aggressive sours, has always been the goal and always been the way. And I love the change that I've watched happen because none of us, even when we started, thought we were making these extreme sour beers and it wasn't our goal. Now, albeit, I still think Nightmare on Brett is just so incredibly <laughs> sour. I love Nightmare on Brett two years later. Once the Britannomyces has taken all of the lactic acid and converted so much of it into ethyl lactate, because it's taken that acid and made an ester, which is creating a fruity, you know, lighter note, and the acidity really balances out in there in those characteristics. And we try to use bourbon barrels and all these other things, but it's just something about dark malts and, and dark beers. They just get so sour, um, regardless of what I'll touch on, which is techniques and how to be able to um, back that off and, and change that. And so, you know, a, a champion of this actually is is. Uh, Russian River does a great job, but Jolly Pumpkin. 
Ron Jeffries makes some of the most phenomenal beers, and he always has. He was the first one who was entirely wood and barrel age focused. And it's neat because as a consumer and a brewer, it actually took me a while to realize because I wanted sour beer, right? And I was like, oh, I'm going to get Jolly Pumpkin at sour beer. And then I'd get a BAM. And especially if you get a fresh BAM, there's like the hops and the saison and, and all these characteristics. And you're, you're almost like, oh, this, this isn't sour. You know, because there's these nice, <laughs> sure, complex, sure. tart characteristics. And it took me a while until I was brewing these beers that I was like, this light bulb went off like, of course. It's not supposed to be a sour beer. Like, there's all these other attributes to it in the Brett. And so that, there were people who were doing that in the beginning. And then we, we got it. You know, sour beer took off. And there was a lot of really sour beer. There was a lot of really acetic beer as well. And acetic gives you a little bit more of that kind of burn sure. yeah. as it goes that down. physical burn in the back of the throat. So right. learning learning about that. And one of the the issues that I think came is that people looked at lambic and they looked at the lambic that was coming into the united states and it was so sour and they're like oh it's got to be sour like that the most amazing thing is that when you drink lambic in belgium it's not very sour and lambic itself is not supposed to be very sour yeah by the time it gets over here and it's aged and, and it's gone through that process it's a lot more sour and some lambic brewers produce more sour goose and lambic than others and when you get over there you realize that there's there's differences and nuances to it. And so Lambic itself is not supposed to be very sour. At this point, maybe a lot of people who've had some Girardin have had bottles of Girardin where they're like, whoa, this is only kind of tart. A lot of Lambic is actually like that in, in Belgium. And it's sure, never sure. supposed to be this crazy sour thing. You can say that for all Belgian styles. It seems like the ones that make the trip on the boat uh, the most are, are the ones that, that are, can also stand up to that. Uh-huh. You know, that uh, I, love, those, I love to tell everyone, not all Belgian beer tastes like Chimay. <laughs> that is that is yeah, one yeah. type of Belgian beer that tastes like that. You know, a lot of Belgian beer just tastes like beer. We and we get even with them in America by sending IPAs over there, yes. which then all taste old, oxidized, and stale. And uh, which is and funny so, because then they think that they think they're supposed yeah. to have that character. So you yeah. have, I've had IPAs in, in France and in different locations, yeah. and like try this, try this. You know what I'm trying? To, I'm like, oh. This tastes like IPA that's come to France, but this was broody. Ah, the same way Fest beer, like German, these German beers, Melanoidin malt. They don't use Melanoidin malt in Germany. That's something we created over here in America to put in German beers because by the time the German beer gets here, it's developed these Melanoidin type characteristics and oxidized. It's not what it tastes like in Germany, but that's what we were brewing here for a long time. Sure, sure. So yeah, so I mean, lost in translation, right? It's it's beautiful though. Yeah. And sour beer, the more and more sour beer I'm seeing, tasting, I've heard everyone kind of continuing to repeat this about like, oh, we look to use these softer sides. I think ask, you know, ask 10 brewers making sour beer and and doing it well, and eight out of 10 of them at some point in the conversation pretty quickly are going to mention that when they make their blends, what they look, what they're looking for are soft notes, not high acidity, but these more complex, lighter, tart and and the fact that people are saying that is goes back to that. It's an yeah. absolute success story. I think that we're really winning for the most part in the United States with people making complex, less acidity driven sours and realizing that acidity is just one note of these sour beers. So But when you're making those beers, I mean it's certainly possible for those cultures to run wild and produce a whole bunch of acidity. Yeah. How do you how do you keep that under control? And when you're blending into your sour beers, 
I mean, are you, you know, specifically aging uh, acid beer in order to create an acid component and to balance against some less acidic? Or are you, in, in general, uh, you know, say using hops to try to, you know, yeah. you know knock down some of the, the lactic acid uh, Again, bacteria I, activity? I roll back to the brew house. Okay. So I say we can take care of everything, like in the brew house and through fermentation. So VA is an example of not only one of my favorite beers that we brew, but a great example of a beer. That's that, VA, the French spelling. Yeah, or uh, Vier. <laughs> and that, that beer is beautiful because it actually resembles, after a long time, Lambic more because of the amount of hops that we use in it. It's this Saison that has like nearly 30 IBUs, yet because of the aging and the time on it and the bacteria in our culture, it, it develops acidity, it develops tartness, it never quite becomes this full-on sour beer, even when it's three, four years old, yet the way the hops play with it, the way everything, it always keeps that culture at bay. Even though, probably if you ran the IBUs But even with 30 VA, IBUs, you'd think that you wouldn't get much acid uh, bacteria activity at that. And so that's where it's all about the cultures too. So we have a very hop-tolerant culture. Mm. You know, our culture with us is eight years old, and I know before that it's probably about another eight years old. So, I mean, the culture that essentially lives throughout Crooked Stave and throughout our barrels is, yeah, a good 15, 16 years old. And while we've made it uniquely ours, it's through the process and through the brewing. I love to use hops. Hops are a great way to combat the IBUs. So while on a lot of our beers, we just put the IBUs at 15, that's probably about the lowest of any beer we ever make. Probably most of our beers are closer to 20 IBUs, hmm. uh, up to 30 including Nightmare on Brett. Nightmare on Brett is in the 20, 22 IBU range to try to keep as much <laughs> souring from happening. And we know our culture. Other cultures, when I first started, and especially using um, you know, lab cultures, which I'm going to say they're not acclimated mm. to going into beer and doing that, I had trouble souring at five IBUs. Interesting. But as, the, as our mixed culture, as we had that, as that grew, and as we selected our favorite barrels, we've seen it continue to really be able to acidify tar piers. Uh, here's a great example. Serenata Naturna, which is a 12% golden sour we do, is 45 IBUs. And it, it's tart to sour. <laughs> uh, motif huh. as well, yeah. uh, which is a dark sour base that we then use. We usually put fruit on it and make like silly Cybes or Salvador Cybes, 35 to 40 IBUs. We're really trying to get those to actually be these old world Belgian Ode Bruin in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to get as much IBUs in it to try and stave off as much acidity production as possible. Yet we primary ferment them in our mixed, in our culture with all the, in our fooder with the mixed culture, same fooders we primary ferment petite sour in. Petite sour, same thing. Literally its name as it has always been is petite sour, which means it's to have a small amount of acidity and a small ABV as well. It should be small in, in all the senses of that. So to keep it more tart than like puckering sour, right. it's, it's about the IBUs and the way that you we use that process, the way we ferment it as well. You know, it's important the temperatures that it gets up to, that really allows the Saccharomyces and the Britannomyces to outcompete hmm. those bacterias when it's going in. Even though you think, well, the bacteria ferments even better and faster right. at the warm temps. But it's the... Um, and the audacity almost, the speed at which Saccharomyces can produce the alcohol, that slows the bacteria then down. 
Uh, so those balances. Well, that's an interesting idea I hadn't considered that uh, as the alcohol level rises, then it's going to. It's going to slow them down. Okay. And then as the pH continues to drop as well, it's going to slow them yeah. down as well. So, you know, Vinny used to always talk about it the way that he would do his barrels. He would, they'd move the base beer in there that they'd already fermented some kind of Belgian ale or something to that extent. They would add the Britannomyces and then they would wait a couple of months to add the bacteria because they said it didn't take that long for the bacteria. For our process, you know, in most beers, for especially the, the petite sours and the sour rosé that we do, the bacteria, the Britannomyces, the Saccharomyces, everything has always been in there and is in there from the beginning. So we find other ways to kind of curb that and be able to do that and to complement it. The use of raspberries and blueberries and the amount that we use helps that as well. Hmm. And we actually really pick our fruit for the ripeness because you'll get so much more acid from fruit as well. And so especially when we start to look at the long-aged ones and, and we talk about like persica and the peaches, we really have to look at the balance of that fruit with the beer that we make. We need to have as soft of a base beer as possible so that the acids from fruit don't overpower. So in Sour Rosé, we're actually, even though that beer is so bone dry, we're using the raspberries and the blueberries to create the rosé hue, but also to lift a little bit of fruitiness into it to give it a perceived sweetness and and work with the softness of the base beer as well uh for our golden sours and for all our sours we don't we don't make like acid beer and then brett beer or anything else we make we make the beer and we always make it that same Hmm. way and so for instance like the golden sour we make now we're going about three years it's 100 percent spontaneous so we've used colorado raw wheat and colorado barley 60 40 blend by weight uh that gets a double decoction or a turbid mash as it's known we raise those temperatures up we follow every protocol just as they would in lambic and, and even 200 years ago hmm. we boil for a really long boil we used aged hops what's in really it. long uh so for us we do three hours yeah the reason why we do three hours instead of four is because of the altitude that we're at we mm-hmm. boil below uh so 100 degrees Celsius would be yeah. boiling. Water would be like 212 in Fahrenheit and 100 in Celsius. We're boiling at between 95 and 96 degrees Celsius. And so we get a really, really vigorous direct fire boil right. from ours. For Belgian brewers, the reason why they would, it was more of a simmer for four hours. Mm. So our boil for three is probably the equivalent of like a six-hour simmer. You also have much lower humidity levels out here. And yeah, and the atmospheric pressure, of, yeah, so everything yeah. wanting to come off and stuff. Yeah. So three is probably a lot more extreme than when other people do like four and such. Yeah. Up into the cool ship, goes up into the cool ship at those boiling temperatures. There's the catch to catch all the whole cone hops, and you're shoveling a lot out of the, the kettle as well. And it sits in the cool ship overnight. And we get really good cooling because of the way it's built, the surface ratio, because the cooling happens from the bottom while the steam is lifting off the top. Mm-hmm. It's all about like surface ratio and the height up and, and the airflow below. And so by 8 a.m. we're coming in and we're down to 24 to 21 degrees Celsius. And by the time we then pump that into our spontaneous hall, I mean, it's going in barrels at around 18 degrees Celsius. Um, which is right there kind of in that, that fermentation temp that yeah. you'd like as, as though you were fermenting an ale or anything. In sure. there. And so we always make our golden sour wort that way. It's always done by you know, 25 hectoliter batches and it goes into uh, wine punching. So they've never been used for beer before. We swell them, wort goes in and ferments. Essentially, they all have all the same cultures, all the same way, all from the same thing. That's about 
somehow the uniqueness of each barrel. Each barrel is different. Hmm. So if you taste, a lot of times, three-year-old Lambic is really not even sour. Yeah. And it has to be because the more acidic stuff is usually the one-year. I, I actually prefer, I like drinking the one-year. I like the complexities, the wildness that it has, the blend of the bacteria and the tartness. Two years is kind of in between, and a lot of times the three-year is the softest of the Lambics. The reason why it got to three years is because it was the softest of the Lambics. They weren't hmm. putting the softest Lambic in in the one-year. The one-year is what gives it a lot of the girth and the character of what yeah. it is. That's the way the barrels develop. That's got to do with you know what organisms decided to land on that batch at, at that time. And we see differences from the first batch of the year to the last batch of the year mm-hmm. in the speed of fermentation, the character of it as well. So we're starting to build ideas for us here as we've watched this over the past three years of which, which batch tends to lend itself throughout the year better to mm. being a one-year, a two-year, or a three-year as well. Origins, which is our burgundy base, uh, it's brewed as a lager, actually. So hmm. uh, both Origins and Nightmare, we brew them as a lager. The idea is that in order for a beer to become sour, it must die first. So the less you have in that beer from the beginning, from the esters and all these yeah. characteristics, the less the beer needs to die in the first place. And the more you can draw upon the malt, the characteristics that you were looking for in that beer to become that sour beer. So Origins and Nightmare, same they're always going into barrels with the exact same process all the time, coming from the same culture, the same inoculation rates. So in theory, every barrel should be identical. In practice, every barrel is completely different. Hmm. And so, yeah, then we look at it, the blends. And you'll taste ones from the, you know, we'll pull from a few different batches at different times. And you'll find some older ones, 16-month ones, you're like, this is just not ready yet. And then you find some eight-month-old ones, and you're like, I would bottle this on its own. This is so phenomenal. It's right there. You end up building a blend out of them usually to try to get that same consistency. Yeah. So really, we control. We, from our standpoint, we control that in the brew house with IBUs, brewing process, flavors. Right, malt will have different characteristics that can create further characteristics all the way through. We use neutral barrels, with the exception of Nightmare on Brett, because it's Leopold Brothers and different bourbon barrels. But even then, the that acidity and that darkness and that dark beer. Um, so I, I even, it's kind of funny, I, I, you know, like it'll get me a little bit because we were always at the forefront of talking about like, don't let beer be too sour. Don't make too sour beer and all these things. And we've always been working on it. And then we'll have friends who, who will describe their beer and they're like, well, you know, we, ours is just a little bit lighter than crooked stave. You know, we, we try to accentuate less acidity and I'm like, what? I'm probably the one who told you about this. I'm the one who said, don't make sour beer, make complex beer. Uh, but I'm like. So it's okay. It's okay. Um, no, but, but it's important. And, and things change over the years and, and fruit changes over the years. Right, so right. we look at this batch of Persica, maybe two ones in the past. The idea has been the same since the very first batch, but year to year, brewing techniques, blending, everything we learn, that's, that's where we're able to change it as well and, and be able to play around with it. So there's, there's no one kind of recipe to success, but it's, yeah. It's all of it kind of combined, and, and it's it's wonderful, and I, I love seeing it within the industry, the, these complex sours instead of these crazy sour sours. Well, it's certainly good to be the metric that other brewers might compare themselves against. Um, what's next for Crooked Stave? What's big on your horizon, and what's, uh, what is exciting you out there? Uh, you know, do you have any special projects or uh, 
you know, as a brewer, you love making these beers that are classics now for you, but uh, you also want to keep yourself interested and excited and uh, keep your brewing staff uh, equally engaged with new things. So, uh, yeah, what's on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things always come back to, you know, we spent over the past couple of years looking at, you know, our culture, what Crooked Stave was. And, you know, we have our mission statement, which was written before we ever even made any beer. You know, same thing for our visions, our values, which were written, you know, just a couple years after that. And while we've gone through what I consider a beautiful change, uh, it's more a growth and, and sort of growing up. And so I love to always talk about, like, really the, the culture that Crooked State was founded on, which was education and quality. And we love to say that we make a high-quality product that we educate the market with distribution company that we have is, is very much the same, right? We bring in high quality products and continue to educate the market. So that that education and quality aspect really, really keeps me passionate about a lot of things. And it keeps me passionate about things that even are on the less creative side because of find ways to make them really creative. So quality and education to me means being able to continue educating the consumer and to continue to grow what is sour beer. Our, our mission, our vision is to, you know, always produce, be a, be a world leader in fermentation and be a, a world leader in the education of wild and sour beers. And I've loved watching the way uh, the cans that we're making and especially IPA and Pilsner. You know, everyone always, always was like, oh, Cricket Saves a sour brewery. And back in the day, 2010, 2011, through 2012, I would always be, well, no, like we make wild beers and we make other beers. Like it's not just sour. Eventually I just gave up on that. I was like, <laughs> people are going to say what they want to say, right? I'm going to stick with my education piece and what we do. Having the Pilsner in the IPA is really the, the final puzzle pieces to being allow, allowing to be out there to be more widespread, introducing people to our brand, which is Crooked Stave, yeah. and getting them familiar with high quality product because then we know we have their trust and they're gonna to wanna to try more beers. The ultimate for us is for someone to have had the IPA or the Pilsner and walk into whether it's our tap room, a restaurant, or you know any of the many liquor stores and say like, I had this Crooked Stave beer, like what else do they have? I mean, that's like a home run, just set up for sure. the buyer. Like, you haven't had their Britannomyces beers? Like, try St. Breda, a sour rosé, and so, taking these beers that we made and getting them to a really approachable price point so that consumers can finally try them, it's really hard to start with a $20, $25 bottle of sour beer. The market, it used to not be that way because of where the market was at and the consumer. We want to hear people say, ah, you know, Crooked Stave is the first sour I had. If I hear that, that's, that's amazing because I remember how important New Belgium is to me and New Belgium being my first sour and trying that. And so... That, that education and quality piece really keeps me focused and really keeps me excited. And the fact that we've been able to take that and apply that at Crooked Stave so well makes, makes me really happy. And, you know, the ones I think that's been the biggest success for us and been a really, really fun thing and also an innovation is doing the Britannomyces cans and learning through that, uh, sending them off to ball to get corrosion testing to make sure that can liners aren't coming off. That did happen. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so we saw a little bit of that acidity. It happens. And so looking at that and then putting sour rosé and making this rosé beer and a sour beer in a can and, you know, going back to the Crooked Stave as a sour brewery, 
our number one beer on both package and draft is sour rosé. I love that no matter how much IPA or Pilsner we try to make, it's a sour beer that's resonating with the customer and that, you know, is really getting us out there. And with that, you know, that allows the, the fun, the neat little projects. The biggest one for us has been... That really does defy expectations. And I, I, I find that fascinating that uh, you can have a canned sour beer now and at a very aggressive price point yeah. for a six-pack of 12-ounce cans of a beer called Sour Rosé. And that is your far and away biggest seller. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we, we see it as like, we're going to take that hit. We, we want to do this for the industry. There are friends all around the U.S. And, and the world really make phenomenal sour beer and we want to make more sour beer drinkers and it just takes it's just getting it in front of them getting in front of the customer we think sour rosé is the perfect beer for that it resonates with us because we've always been about the organisms and the fermentation and sour rosé when uh when we knock it out of the kettle it's at the exact same ph as pilsner ipa coffee baltic porter origins any of them it's all everything must be kind of right around this like Five one to four nine. So basically, we're we're always on average around five five point zero five pH, and so is sour rosé. And the fact that all fermentation, all character comes from a true fermentation, we don't arrest that, we don't stop that, and all the live organisms are with it. Then with the whole fruit, we always use whole fruit, raspberries, and blueberries, and then into the can is even kind of can conditions a little bit, and for those final bits of carbonation after we brought up in the bright tank, to have that live living traditional style sour in a can. It's cool. See, as you can tell, I'm passionate about that and being able to do that. And it lends itself then to really neat projects. And it's what allows us to do the things that really keep us going here. Uh, yesterday, if you would have been in at the brewery, we had crushed grapes that we brought in. So we brought in a couple grapes from the Western Slope here in Colorado, uh, Vitis vinifera wine grapes. We crushed them, let them age on their skins. And so some of the whites got a, a maceration on their skins. We then pressed them off into just the juice and we're transferring some of the golden spontaneous on top of that then on top of that we also have a couple of the reds and so we've left them macerating and now just transferred we're on top of those so more of these kind of 50 50 grape hybrid hmm. wine yeah. spontaneous beers but also barrels i mentioned earlier it was always our aspect that the barrel was a neutral vessel for which the organisms lived and could create all the flavors, aromas, and character that that beer took on. Well, as we moved on from, you know, so say that was Origins or Nightmare um, or even Libretto Or, where it's, you know, the golden sour, as we move that on and we are bringing in whole fruit, now we're making Persica or Suret Reserve of Palisade Peach. And so we've taken these beers to another level by adding all these fruits to them and adding the complexity. And then we kind of got the idea and the inspiration. And we're like, okay, now what if we take that beer, which we would consider finished because it's aged on the fruit for all these months and the beer was already sour and finished before, and we put it back into a barrel, but now we use a specialty barrel. And that's really been the, the foray that we've been on and, and releasing these beers for the past year. So we'll take Mama Bear Sour Cherry Pie, and after it's aged with all these cherries, put it back into a cinnamon vanilla whiskey barrel or Woodford Reserve Double Oaked Barrel. Nightmare on Bread has gone into port barrels, VSOP cognac barrels. We've put stuff, you know, Libretta Apricot in brandy barrels, Strat Reserve Palisade Peach in vermouth barrels, Sauvignon Blanc barrels. So taking that aspect now of the barrel aging and actually drawing inspiration from the liquid that was inside of it and barrel aging that. And then we've taken some of those 
for instance, we took Lorette d'Apricot Aged Sauvignon Blanc barrels and transferred that and then added raspberries on top of it. So now we got a beer that probably has like eight pounds <laughs> per gallon of fruit in it, both apricots and raspberries yeah. and Sauvignon Blanc barrels. And the beer was 12 months old for it. It's probably like 26, 28 months old now. Just creating these just fun things. And that's where we're just really, I think, really getting wild with it. Or yeah. we're like, okay, let's take the port barrel out and then let's put it into a fresh VSOP cognac barrel. So now we're like double barrel aged port VSOP. <laughs> it's like, you know, wherever your mind can go to draw these inspirations and to do these things or, uh, or pulling, yeah, for Surrette Reserva Palisade peach. So versus Surrette Reserva for like a year, then it got peaches for a few months, 4,000 pounds of peaches. Then we took a couple of those and put them into Sauvignon Blanc barrels and aged them in Sauvignon Blanc barrels for a year. And then we took those two barrels, blended them together, and then we dry hopped it with Halatel Blanc to make a Blanc de Blanc beer. I mean, I, it's like, yeah, where, where can you go from here? So those, those are fun um, creative things. Actually, we got a Mama Bears that's been aging in rye barrels, Mama Bears. So it's, I think it's 2016 cherries. So it's been aging in these rye barrels for so long that the beer is clarified so much. And, and the cherry character and where it's gone in this rye barrel, we're going to add citrus to it and make sort of like a, uh, an old fashioned, if you will, <laughs> because it like pretty huh. much tastes like a spirit. Yeah. This, this cherry liqueur spirit. Yeah. It's really, really neat. Cool. And so that, that has been huge. Um, and then as we were today and as we were tasting, um, a really, really unique one for us and, and fits with the whole barrel aging theme is these bourbon barrel aged Imperial stouts. So I think we've kind of kept it more or less pretty quiet that we've got these these barrels aging away in this dark other cellar that we don't really <laughs> ever show anyone. And these like 14, 15% Imperial Stouts that have been aging for over 24 months and Angel's Envy and Heaven Hill and Woodford and all sorts of different maple bourbon barrels. And so as we start to kind of do these single barrel variants of that uh, in a 16 ounce can, it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be fun. Never like... I think that's something that people should also expect from Kruger Save. Like, never, you know, always expect something different. We're always evolving. We're always doing something. And just when you expect us, like, oh, yeah, well, they'll probably release those in 375 mil bottles or something. Now we're going to put them in 16-ounce cans. Never released a 16-ounce can before, but why not do it with a 24-month-old bourbon barrel-aged 14% imperial stout? Look forward to trying those. Chad Jacobson. Crooked Stave Artisan Beer Project. Thank you for talking with me on the podcast. Where, uh, if people want to learn more about Crooked Stave, where do they find you on uh, on the interwebs and what? Uh, definitely Instagram and Facebook are always great, and we will have a brand new website a brand up. New website. I am with actual within, information on with it? a real website, not just one page that says "coming soon" since 2012. Yeah, uh, but one that has real information about us and is up to date. Should be a week or two, so maybe by the time this is out, I bet there'll so. be a crookedstave.com website. Well, perfect. Thank you so so much for talking with us. I uh, really appreciate it. If uh, if all of you out there listening have enjoyed the podcast, we hope you'll hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast uh, application. And we hope you'd also subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine at beerandbrewing.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.